using right. Everybody's happy. So. Okay, new section. We wrapped up the last one, so we don't really need to review. <coughs> Amazing. <laughs> this next one's going to be worse. Uh, so that puts us in chapter 18, and or, sorry, chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, and verse 28. Now, the last section, actually two sections ago, and I'm finding it as I go through this that there, there's a lot of themes that keep on coming up, a lot of things get kind of repeated and so forth. So, <clears throat> two sections ago, the, the topic was uh, who will be in the kingdom of heaven and who will be out. And he told them that they needed to strive to enter the kingdom. But it wasn't a striving of keeping the law. It was a striving to be humble, to lower oneself, to recognize your true position before God. If you don't, at, <clears throat> when the, the great feast of the kingdom of heaven come, your seat isn't up at the front. Your seat is way out in the back. That's where you belong. And you need to recognize that. Because those who are humble will be lifted up. Those who exalt themselves will be put down. So the, those, uh, to, the key to entering the kingdom of heaven is to humble yourself. Then, then the last section took a look at what kind of people are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Who, who makes up the, the crowd. And uh, he showed us that it's the people who who look to God as their only resource. They don't have anybody else they can appeal to, or they don't consider it anybody else worth appealing to. They appeal to God, and even if they have to wait a long, long time, they wait on God. And then the other and the other characteristic is it's the people that, re that uh, they see that they're in need of God's mercy. And so they... Uh, they, they cry, they say, have... They like that... that tax collector in the temple who says, have mercy on me, O God. That's the characteristics of the people in the kingdom of God. And they're to remain busy uh, doing good works. That's how that section wrapped up. Now, in this section, <clears throat> I think, I'm thinking that it looks like he's going to take a look at the people who are not in the kingdom of heaven, the people who are on the outside. But at the same time, uh, to, to show what the people are like outside the kingdom of heaven, it has to be, uh, the Lord Jesus has to be put on display. You have to see who he is and their response to him. How they respond to him is really their key characteristics, or their, the, what, what really demonstrates who they are. And, and uh, hopefully we'll see that as we go on. So let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Our Father, we come before you and look to you for your help and understanding to be able to appreciate and see the relevance of what you have written in your word so many years ago, that it is still true today and it is relevant and it is light uh, and light to our eyes and gives us understandings. We ask for your help and your blessing this morning as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the section opens up, verse 28. When in, in Luke chapter 19, when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And I think this is the last little divider, geographical divider that he uses in the book. Uh, 
the, the last several sections, you remember, they've always had this little statement in there that talks about him moving towards Jerusalem. And so here we have it again. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And let's see what happens here. It came to pass that when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. So he's outside of Jerusalem, not far, maybe a mile or two, uh, in the town, the town of Bethany and the Mount of Olives. And so he's, he's just about up to the gates of Jerusalem. And, this, and he sends two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you. <clears throat> Where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to him, or said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So let's grab, or grasp the imagery of what's going on here. I uh, notice that the Lord is being presented here at the beginning of the section as he's recognized as a king. He's the king that's coming in the name of the Lord. And the, it's interesting how he comes because he grabs this colt and it's a colt that no one has ever sat before. And so for him to sit on the colt is a little bit, I mean, I wonder what them disciples thought as they went out to go grab that colt and they're bringing that colt back and they're like, they know nobody's ever sat on this and they're going to take the Lord and they're going to set him on there, on the colt. And I don't know if you've ever tried that before. Uh, Danielle is working up to the point where she can, jump on top of one of our miniature horses, one that doesn't, we don't ride on very much. And it takes time. It takes work. You don't just take somebody and set them on top of a horse that's never been ridden before. The horse goes bananas, ballistic, and sends the person into orbit or near, near to it. But the Lord sat on that colt, and the colt carried him. There wasn't a single problem. Now, uh, the way that he obtained the colt is kind of unique. He came, I mean, they sent two disciples, they, they started, they walked, they found this colt, there he is. They didn't knock on the door and ask if they could do that, or if they could borrow the bus or the colt or whatever. They just walked up and started untying it, and of course the people there got a little excited and said, what do you think you're doing? Horse thieves get hung around here, what are you guys doing? And he said, well, the Lord has need of this colt. And that was enough. They let it go. They didn't say, Lord, who? As far as we know, they just said, the Lord has need of the coat. And I was thinking about that owner. I was thinking, like, what is, what is his mindset as these two strangers come up and then tell him the Lord has need of them? You know, in the, it, it used to be back in the days of the, 
of the kings, you know, in, in uh, Europe, that kings would do that. If they had a need of something, they would send their servants out to find if they needed a big horse or something. You know, they'd send their servants out, and they would say, uh, the king has need of this, and you'd have to give it up. Because that's the way it worked. You know, your stuff was... They, they, they had the mentality that they were... Uh, they were kind of the king's servants, sort of free men, but still obligated to whatever they had was, in effect, was the king's. And so they had to, if the king wanted whatever item they might have had, they had to give it up to him. Seems to me, for me to imagine being in that kind of system, if I had a king come up and say, oh, I need your car, oh, go buy your own. You know, like, why do I got to give you my car? And it'd be a little bit of resentment. There. Be like, well, this is my car. I mean, what do you... And so to have the mindset then to recognize, well, it's not my car, I just kind of have it, and if the king wants to take the car, then I guess, you know, that's that's his right, he's got that, you know, have that kind of system, for me to imagine that would be hard to do. But you read some of the stories of those people back in those days, and they counted it an honor. Of all the horses in the kingdom, the king came over and he took mine, and now there's my horse, and it's carrying the king. And they thought that was an amazing honor to be selected out of all, not everybody's horse was taken by the king. He only needed to ride one. And if he rode your horse, that was a real honor. And I wonder if that's what it was like for this guy. The Lord has need of him? You mean he's come to this town and he took, he sees my coat and he wants to use this one? Wow. And I think what the Lord is illustrating is that is how it is. I mean, he is king, he is Lord, and anything that we have, it is his. And if he wants to use it, that's his right. And sometimes, if you're like me, we'll have the mindset where we'll be like, well, wait a minute, I wasn't ready to give this, I wasn't done with this yet, you can't. I mean, do I have to give it up? Really? Why can't you take somebody else's? Seems like it would be better to have the mindset to say, well, wow, the Lord, out of all the options that the Lord had, he chose to use what I had for his, for his use. Now, it wasn't just the owner of the cult who had this mentality that the Lord that it was a privilege to have the Lord take his coat. But you'll notice the response of the people as they go, you know, they, they brought the coat to Jesus and they're going to set him on there and then they're like, wait a second, you can't just, that just bareback riding, I mean, that's what the rednecks do up in the hills of Galilee. We need to, some kind of something for him to sit on. So they, they took their coats off and they laid it on the, you know, as kind of a, uh, I don't know what you call it, saddle blanket or something, and set the Lord on the colt there, and as he went down, and and then other people started taking off their coat, coats. I don't know how it started. You know, maybe as the colt is walking along, there's a rough spot on the road where there's some rocks sticking up or something like that, maybe. And I don't know if they shooed their horses back then, but if you got a young colt and you got a, a full-grown man on the colt, and he's going to walk across some sharp rocks, it's going to be a little hard on his hooves. This colt was not shot, we know that, because he hadn't been ridden before. So it might make him, you know, jump a little bit or something. So somebody 
takes his coat off when he puts it on there so that the, the coat can walk across. And other people, they saw, wow, that is, they saw that as a sign of respect and a sign of honoring the Lord. And so they began to take their coats off and began to lay it on the road so that the coat would walk across their coat. This was the coat that the Lord rode across. There's the tracks right down the back. And not only that, but as they began to go, the sense of this is, you know, as they, you know, you see, they begin to they begin to, to shout and to sing, to praise God, say, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord," and to to honor Him. It wasn't planned. It wasn't orchestrated. This was something that spontaneously happened. As they went down, they saw the Lord coming down, and they said, the right thing to do at this point is to, to sing for him. I mean, it, just, it, it seemed so right to sing praise to God that now Jesus was getting the recognition that he deserved. They were putting the coats down. He was riding the coat down. And, and they began to sing because it was so right. Up until this point, Jesus had just been a regular man from Nazareth. He didn't look any different, wasn't treated any different. I mean, people followed him and things like that, but he didn't get any recognition. They didn't, they didn't put fancy robes on him, didn't put a crown on his head. They didn't carry him around in a litter. They, I mean, he just walked down the roads like everybody else. But they, they heard what he taught, and they saw what he did, and they said, this man, he's, he's from God. He's He's amazing. And now as he begins to go down, they begin to show him some honor and show him some respect. And, and the people are like, this is so right. And they begin to sing and to praise to, because it was so full inside of them. Now the, the words that they sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is, uh, seems to be a quote from Psalm 118. And keep that number in your mind because we'll be coming across it again later if we get that far. Let's see if I can find it somewhere in here. Yeah, in verse 26. It's a it's a psalm that talks about the Lord's mercy enduring forever and it talks about the salvation that God is bringing and the righteousness and, and all these different things and there's a verse in there that says blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and it talks about God as the Lord and he's our light and, it, and I will praise you and give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever that kind of thing is in the thought of that psalm and there here is the one who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest this kind of reminds you a little bit of the angels when the, when the Lord was first born as they sang out from heaven peace on earth and uh, goodwill to men. Now the Pharisees <clears throat> the disciples who listened to Jesus and they saw what he did they were, and they saw that this was so right for him to receive honor. The Pharisees, they didn't really listen much to what Jesus said. They didn't uh, they were of a different opinion. They said, teacher, rabbi, you need to rebuke your disciples. They're getting a little carried away here. and You need to tone them down. But Jesus said, you know, 
If they didn't say this, the stones would cry out. Why would the stones cry out? Because the truth of what was happening was so evident, so obvious. The king is coming in the name of the Lord. This is so real that if the people didn't speak up, the stones would have to. Because you, you can't just ignore this. It's, it's like the truest, most pure form of truth and reality there is for Jesus to receive honor. Come in the name of the Lord. Be recognized as a king. If the people didn't recognize it, something would have to. Because that's what it was like when he was born. They didn't recognize who he was. And the angels had to cry out from heaven. So you see what these people are like who are outside of the kingdom. When the truth is there, that's so obvious and so right and so pure, they don't see it. It's so real that even the stones would cry out if the people didn't. And they don't, the Pharisees, they just, they don't see it. So, in verse 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, that the things, make, the things that are made for your peace, and now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. I suspect based on the other Gospels that Luke has inserted the story. I don't know if when he was riding with the colt, if tears began to run down his eyes, or if it was a different time when he was coming up to Jerusalem. I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't be surprised. But he has put it right in here. And it really underlines what the problem that the Pharisees had. They didn't see the obvious truth. And remember, Jerusalem, when he was talking about the people that would not be entering the kingdom, he said that Jerusalem was really the center of where people would be on the outside. The people from Jerusalem would be on the outside, much to their shock and amazement. And here he is weeping because they will be on the outside. He says, look, the truth has come now. The thing that you have been looking for, where God has brought his anointed to your gates, and, and you don't know it. You, it's just completely missed you. You, you don't even understand what's going on. And because you don't understand what's going on, the events are going to play out and Jerusalem is going to be leveled. It's going to be destroyed. The people are going to be killed. And it happened, like Jesus said. But barely 30 years later, Jerusalem would be leveled and then they would rebuild it. And another 100 years after that, it would be utterly destroyed, completely annihilated. They would, because, because they didn't recognize the truth that was so evident and so obvious before them. So that is the characteristic of people on the outside is that they don't see the truth. And it's hard to understand that sometimes because you, sometimes you're talking to people who are, who are unbelievers or unsaved and you're trying to explain to them and they, sometimes they scoff at the truth. They say, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How can you be so unscientific or this, that, or other? You know, they just like, but how can you miss what is so true? You know, you want to say to them. It's like, it's it's so obvious. 
a characteristic of the people outside the kingdom is that they don't see what is true, and the Lord weeps over them. So it says in verse 45 that he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people, they sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. He quotes uh, from Isaiah 56, when Isaiah had come to the children of Israel and, and told them, like, you guys have been worshiping other idols. You guys go out and you worship Baal and you offer sacrifices to the idols. And then you come to the temple and then you offer up your sacrifices to me like everything's fine and hunky-dory. He's like, look, this, this was intended, this is a house of prayer intended for the Gentiles to come and approach me but you guys are sitting near idolatry and then you come and worship before me as if you can be idolaters and worship me at the same time. He said, no. My house is a house of prayer, but you are like a den of thieves and you come right into my presence. That was originally when they were before they were taken away into Babylon. And now he repeats it again. My house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You're as bad as the people were. Before, when I hauled them off into Babylon, you're in the same condition, only it's different now. Because in, the, in the, the day of Isaiah, they were worshiping idols. But here, they're not worshiping idols. They're not walking around, go running over to the temple of Zeus and worshiping there, and then coming back over to this temple and worshiping before God. No, they come before here all the time. But you see what they're doing. They were buying and selling in the temple. They made it a marketplace. They, they took this religion, this holy religion that God set up, and they converted it into a way to make money. Where money became the, uh, became the thing of value. And it was supposed to be a place where you come before God and pray before God. And we've noticed in the, uh, uh, in the previous sections that the Lord would comment on the money and how people would get their values all mixed up. They would put high value on money and make that the, uh, the thing to go after. And we see it right here in the temple. This, this uh, mixing up the values and placing a high value on money and, and uh, you know, as, as interesting as the last section closed with the thought of that doing business, you'd, you'd stay busy until I come. But the business, where we know from the context, is not uh, like an earthly type of business where you're trying to get rich. Now, this is what they were doing. That, that misperception of what truly is valuable is, is the root cause of what's keeping them from seeing what is really true. I think. Why, why couldn't these people see what's so obviously true right in front of them? Well, it's because they placed their value someplace else other than on the word and the truth of God. They, they count value, in this case, in money, buying and selling. And it so distorted them, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people, they sought to destroy him. You just ponder those words for a minute. And 
It's not that they didn't just didn't like him or they were kind of irritated by him or they just wanted to get away and wanted him to leave him alone. They wanted to destroy him. The land wasn't big enough for them and Jesus. They didn't want to run him off into some distant country. They wanted to destroy him. He was a threat to them. They, their concept of power and their concept of here was a man who the people were recognizing as a king. You can't, you know, that's why they didn't have room for him. I mean, if this is, if this man is going to start ruling over the people, then we can't rule over the people. You can't have two rulers at the same time, especially if they got different ideas. I mean, it's either him or us, is the mindset. We've got to destroy him. But they couldn't, because the, the people... If you're going to destroy a man who the people follow after, will that automatically make the people start to follow you? I don't think so. Before you can destroy a man, you've got to make him unpopular with the people. Otherwise, you lose the people's loyalty. So they can't destroy him, but they sure would like to. So that seems to be the, the first little paragraph of this section. And then we continue on in, it, in chapter 20. It says, Now it happened on one of these days when he would, because apparently, you know, as it said, it closed in the last paragraph, said that he was teaching daily in the temple. So now one of those days when he's, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, <laughs> he wasn't teaching heresy, he was preaching the gospel. These were good things he was saying. He wasn't stirring up Zionism. He wasn't stirring up, you know, some political speech. He was, he was uh, teaching the gospel. Well, the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who, has, who is he who gave you this authority? He understood that this was about authority. This, this man coming down to them, being receiving accolades from the people and all these praises and honor, that they wanted him to be, they wanted to follow him instead. The people wanted to follow him instead of follow the chief priests and so forth. And they recognized that, you know, what, what, this isn't going to work. And they say, well, who, who set you up? Because they had been set up by the Romans. The chief priests had. The, the Romans selected who would be the priests. They wanted to put priests, because they knew that the priests were ones that had great influence over the people. So they would set up priests that would keep the people at least uh, from rebelling against Rome. And uh, so they received their their authority from Rome. And they said, well, who has given you your authority? What makes you think you can come in and disrupt our marketplace? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven... He will say then, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Well, the, the Lord's answer to them, which came in a formal question, really exposes where these people are at. It also exposes where he's from. 
And they recognized it. They said if, if John the Baptist received his authority from heaven, then that means he was sent as a prophet and his primary purpose was to introduce this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah. So if John the Baptist was sent from God, then this man was sent from God, and he trumps Rome. Just the way it is. Heaven always wins. So we can't say that, even though that's the obvious answer. Nor can we deny that John came from God, that, that God sent John, because he and the people. If we start dissing John, they're gonna, there's a good chance we're going to lose them, and they'll follow Jesus, so they're stuck. What kind of mentality is this that they have to say, well, clearly he's from, no, no, I'm not going to say he's from heaven. Why would a person do that? And it seems that at the root of their heart is the concept of authority. We are over these people, and if we have to give up this authority to this man, that, no, we don't want to give up the power, our authority. And so they are blind. They don't see what is true because they refuse to see what is true. This is what the people are like. We are outside the kingdom of heaven. There is something that they don't want to give up. And in this case, it was power. But you see how the Lord was exposed. All of a sudden, it became really obvious who sent the Lord Jesus. It was, it, it was really, really hard to deny that he came from God because John the Baptist introduced him as coming from God. So... It's, again, it centers around the Lord. Why are they outside of the kingdom? Because Jesus is king of the kingdom, and they don't want him to rule over them. Rule over them. And so they are on the outside. Even though these are people of God, these are the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people. I mean, these are the, the well-respected, the men who have, their lives are an example to everybody else on how you ought to follow God and what you ought to do. Now the Lord tells a parable in verse 9. He says he began, it says he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What will I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come. Let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. 
So let's uh, understand this parable. The vineyard, oftentimes in the old, or a couple times in the Old Testament, uh, particularly I think it's in the first part of uh, Jeremiah, I think, maybe it's Isaiah, I forget which. But Israel was, or a vineyard was used as a metaphor of the nation of Israel. And God talked about how he had brought this vineyard, this vine out of the land, and how he had planted it in an ideal spot, and he built a a wall around it, and protected it, and how it grew, and he goes on and talks about how Israel, or how a a vine being planted is, is used as a metaphor of Israel. So it's very clear that what he's talking about here is Israel, that there was a man who had a vineyard. This vineyard represented Israel. The man who owned the vineyard, of course, is God. God was the one that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, put them in the land of Canaan, established them there, built a wall around them. They were his. And he he made that statement. He said, you are my people and I am your God. And then it talks about him being gone for a long time. And so it seemed for the children of Israel that they that. God interacted with them only sporadically. I mean, he seemed to be a long ways away. You, you get prophets once in a while, or you get a man of God like uh, like King David, uh, people who would come, and, and clearly they had a connection with God and so forth. But for the most part, he wasn't visibly with them like he was in the wilderness, where they had the cloud in front of them and the pillar of fire, and God was right there, and you could see him. Well, for the most part, when they were in the land of Israel, you couldn't see God. And sometimes the ark even got carried away and it seemed like he was, and the temple would be destroyed and it just didn't seem like God was quite as present as what he was during the time of the wilderness. So he was, it was like a man who was gone into a far country for a long time. But he didn't forget about his vineyard. He sent servants out to collect his due. They were his people and he called upon them to keep his commands and to, to give him the honor and the respect that, that God deserves. And they wouldn't do it. And they would wound us, or his prophets were the servants that he sent. They, they rejected the prophets. They wounded them. They killed some. They cast them out. And so the Lord says, now I'll tell you what's happened here. The owner of the vineyard, God has, he's come to a decision. He says, I am going, they haven't received my prophets, so I'm going to actually see, send my son. And, you know, maybe, maybe my prophets, they just don't have enough respect for them, but I'll send my son. That's a man that they can respect. And he said, but what's happened is that the people who are in charge of the vineyard, on behalf of God, they conspired among themselves. They said, you know what, if we got rid of this guy here, then, then we can have this vineyard as our own. We, and that was the, obviously the, the scribes and the Pharisees, or the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. They had authority over the vineyard, over the children of Israel, and they liked their position. They did not want to give it up. And so when the son came from the owner, the Lord Jesus, when he came from the owner, they wanted to destroy him. Because if they could get rid of him, they could retain their power, their authority over the vineyard, over the children of Israel. And he said, you know, think about it for a second. Just think about it. Suppose they did that. Suppose they killed the son. What's the owner going to do? What is God going to do in response to their killing his son? What would any owner do if somebody went and killed his son? 
logically, he's going to come and destroy those vine dressers, the guys that are ruling over here. I mean, you're, you guys, are, you're, you're headed towards destruction if you kill me, destroy me, is what Jesus says. And when they heard this parable, they said, no way. That is a, and they're not saying no way the owner is going to, they're not saying that's not how the owner is going to respond. He'll, he'll come and he'll treat, no, they're not saying that. They're saying, no way, that entire parable that you just told, that is false. You have totally misapplied the metaphor. You should, I mean, that's, the, you that got this completely wrong. That's not what God has in mind. He doesn't have in mind his son getting killed and then coming down and destroying the leaders of the children of Israel. That is bogus. Where are you going to find that in the scriptures? And Jesus said, well, he looked at them and he said, well, what then is, is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he quotes from scripture. He says, look, your, your prophets tell you this. Interestingly enough, the passage that he quotes from is Psalm 118. The very psalm that the Israelites or that the disciples had recorded as they brought Jesus down, he said, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." And Jesus says, "You remember that that event when they came down? They quoted from Psalm 118. You know what else Psalm 118 says? Psalm 118 says, "The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it." The psalmist predicted. That the builders, the rulers over Israel, would reject the chief cornerstone, the son of the owner. It is a true parable. And you are watching the word of God unfold in front of your eyes. I, they sang that psalm to me as I rode down the mountain. And now you are fulfilling the other part of the psalm. You are trying to destroy me. Well, you listen, he says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But whoever, on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. If you will not fall down to me and be broken and be humble, then there will be a time where I would fall on you and you will be destroyed. And the chief priests and the scribes said, oh, that's pretty serious. We're sorry. No, they didn't. The chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. They still wanted to destroy him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken his parable against him. It seems to me that's a, the end of the second paragraph. What a, a what imagery is painted of these people who are outside of the kingdom? I mean, talk about, it's hard to call them blind, because it's clear that they see. They clearly understand that he is the one sent from God, but they utterly reject it. No, they're not going to receive it, and so it's like they're blind. They can't, and in some ways they are blind. They don't understand the reality. It's like, what are you people thinking? It's clear that his authority came from God, like John the Baptist's authority came from God, and you're going to mess with this man? I mean, what is God going to think of that? I mean, hello, talk about, there's easier ways to commit suicide, less painful. 
Why would you choose this way to infuriate God and bring his wrath upon you? They don't see it like that, though. They just see, this man wants me to bend the knee to him? Why would I bend the knee to this man? He'll take everything I have. I've got this marketplace over here, and, and he wants to take it all away from me. I'm not going to bend the knee to him. I've got this power. I've got this, this authority. And I'm going to have to give it up for him? No way. They certainly don't have the attitude of that the guy who owned the colt. Who, who saw that? What? The Lord wants to use my colt? Take it. Have my colt. The man who owned the colt, he recognized that that the, the horses, or I think they were donkeys, actually the donkeys that he had, they were they were a blessing from God. All good things that we have are a blessing from God. God blesses us with good things, and that you know the colt could have died in birth. We had a little colt that died in the process of birth or foal or whatever it was, and. Uh, but God blessed them with a healthy colt that was strong. It's a good strong colt that could carry a man. God had blessed him and he said, you know, if God has blessed me, and is it really mine? He didn't look at the colt as something that was his, something that he had a power and authority over, or something of money that was his, value that was his. He saw it as, this is, this is a, a blessing from God. And if God would like to use what I have, I mean, there's a lot of other people that he could use. There's a lot of other people that he could... Why would he notice my cold? Well, by all means, have the cold. So you see... To understand the people that are on the outside of the kingdom and why they are where they are, we need to understand who Jesus is, who he is, and where he came from. Because their being on the outside, it's because of their perspective of him. They, they don't want to acknowledge that he is who he is. They want to retain what they have as if it's their own, as if they obtained it themselves, as if it wasn't a blessing of God. Them. You guys are you're headed on the path to destruction. It's right. It's so right to say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory on the highest. That is so appropriate, so true, so right to recognize the Lord for who he is. Father, we come before you and give you thanks for sending your son to send him to us. And we are Gentiles, long ways from your people. And you have sent him to us. And he has 
removed that law of requirements against us and enabled, opened the door for us to be, uh, be brought in as your people. And we thank you for the, the marvelous grace that you've poured out on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. What humility he had as he walked among us too. As these men sought to destroy him, he wept over them and he sought to save them. The, uh, the, the compassion that he had, uh, what a gracious king he is. And we thank you that he is our savior. Amen.